Please turn with me in your Bibles to Psalm 92. We will be returning to our series of studies through the Gospel of John, which we left off of at the end of last summer. But that uh, will not begin until next Sunday. So just for this Lord's Day, I wanted to focus upon Psalm 92. Please give your attention to God's word. It is good to give thanks to the Lord, to sing praises to your name, O Most High, to declare your steadfast love in the morning and your faithfulness by night, to the music of the lute and the harp, to the melody of the lyre. For you, O Lord, have made me glad by your work. At the works of your hands I sing for joy. How great are your works, O Lord! Your thoughts are very deep. The stupid man cannot know. The fool cannot understand this, that though the wicked sprout like grass and all evildoers flourish, they are doomed to destruction forever. But you, O Lord, are on high forever. For behold your enemies, O Lord, behold, for behold your enemies shall perish, all evildoers shall be scattered. But you have exalted my horn like that of the wild ox. You have poured over me fresh oil. My eyes have seen the downfall of my enemies. My ears have heard the doom of my evil assailants. The righteous flourish like the palm tree and grow like a cedar in Lebanon. They are planted in the house of the Lord. They flourish in the courts of our God. They still bear fruit in old age. They are ever full of sap and green. To declare that the Lord is upright. He is my rock and there is no unrighteousness in him. About 600 years ago, the Spanish explorer Ponce de Leon accidentally discovered the state of Florida, we now call the state of Florida. He was actually looking for an island that he had been told about called Bimini. And what he had been told is that on this island, not only was it full of gold, which was one of his primary concerns, but also there were these strange stories about a fountain of youth that if they were only able to drink from this fountain of water or bathe in it, youth would be restored for all eternity. Ponce de Leon spent eight years searching for Bimini and the fountain of youth, and he died in the pursuit. To this day, there are still millions of senior citizens searching for the fountain of youth in the state of Florida, Or in plastic surgery or Botox or gene therapy or stem cell research, the pursuit goes on. I noticed as I was looking at the history that Ponce de Leon was about 40 years old when he started his eight-year search for the Fountain of Youth. You know what that screams to me? Midlife crisis. We don't talk much about midlife crisis in the church. It was kind of a fad and a pop psychology thing a while ago. 
but it's real. If you're entering it or are in the midst of it or have come out of it, you know that it's a very real issue. And I think it's especially pronounced in the culture that we live in. Because from the time that we're very young, we're basically given an agenda for our life to pursue. Get a good education. Get a good wife or a good husband. Get a solid career. Get a good retirement package. Have good children, live in a nice house, in a nice neighborhood. It's the American dream. And if you understand that that's the agenda for life, you can understand why between about the ages of 40 and 50, you start to say, okay, checked off most or all those boxes. What do I do now? Where do I go from here? What's the purpose of my life? What do I have to look forward to? And that's really what that midlife crisis is all about. The beginning of January is just a man-made designation. The turning of the calendar really has no inherent value to it. But it is a time of year when we tend to reflect upon our lives, isn't it? The passing of time, the increasing of our age, the time that's left. And I never like to miss an opportunity to allow the Word of God to speak to those questions because, boy, does it speak to those questions. What is your life about? You look at where you've come from. You look at where you have to go. What is your legacy? What is the impact that you will leave? Jesus promised a fountain of youth. You remember that, don't you? He said in John chapter 4, whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. That's an amazing promise. Truly what Ponce de Leon was looking for and couldn't find in this world. Well, Psalm 92 that I just read portrays for you the life that has sipped from the waters of eternal youth. It's a description of the person that has come to know that water that Christ offers. Let me read to you just briefly from verses 12 to 14 again. It says, The righteous flourish like the palm tree and grow like a cedar in Lebanon. They are planted in the house of the Lord. They flourish in the courts of our God. They still bear fruit in old age, and they are ever full of sap and green. He speaks of trees that people in his day and geographical location would have known well. The palm tree. The palm tree was an image of long, abundant life because palm trees live up to 200 years. The cedar was an evergreen. And the cedar grew very tall and is very strong wood. Matter of fact, The cedar was used for building ships and large buildings like the temple because its wood was so strong and it resisted rot. So you can see why the psalmist points to those trees and say, you know, God's people are like that. He says they're full of sap. Doesn't mean that you're sappy. It means that you are full of vibrancy and life 
passion, exuberance, joy means the same as being green. You're vibrant in your life. Well, how can our future look like that? No matter what age you are, whether we're preschool or senior citizen, how can our future look like that? Well, I think that's what the psalm lays out before us. What is the secret of that kind of eternal youth? Let me go back to the first four verses, because if you listen carefully to what I read here in these first four verses, you're going to find the secret to eternal youth. What Ponce de Leon was looking for. It's right here. It's good to give thanks to the Lord, to sing praises to your name, O Most High, to declare your steadfast love in the morning and your faithfulness by night, to the music of the lute and the harp, to the melody of the lyre. For you, O Lord, have made me glad by your work. At the works of your hands, I sing for joy. Right there is the source of eternal vitality. He's talking about worship. He's talking about a life that is God-centered. And that's the secret to that kind of vibrancy, no matter what age you are. Notice in verses 12 and 13, skip down there for a moment. It says that the righteous flourish because they are planted in the house of the Lord. They will flourish in the courts of our God. Now that's kind of a, a jarring image to somebody who lived in Old Testament times because as far as we know, the temple courts didn't have trees. And so he's obviously using a metaphor here. He's giving us a visual image of nearness to God. If you're going to be a cedar tree or a palm tree, what a great thing it would be to be planted in the courts of the Lord, to dwell near to the temple, which was the visible representation of the very presence of the God of the universe. And that's where the psalmist wanted to be. It's a metaphor for living, as the reformers used to say, coram Deo, living in the presence of God, living before the face of God, drawing near to him, which is the very definition of worship. Back in Psalm 84, the psalmist uses a different metaphor. Listen to what he says. How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. My soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and flesh sing for joy to the living God. Even the sparrow finds a home and the swallow a nest for herself where she may lay her young. At your altars, O Lord of hosts, my King and my God, blessed are those who dwell in your house, ever singing your praise. He envies a swallow that could build a nest in the altars at, at the temple that he could live in the presence of God in the context of worship every day of his life. How is that desire in your own heart? Does that sound like the good life to you? God-centeredness. A life that glorifies God by enjoying him forever is the key to eternal youth. How do we do that? You'll notice the psalmist tells us it's by meditating. Don't let that word scare you. The word meditation has been co-opted by Eastern religions to describe some kind of mindless, I don't know what they do when they meditate. They empty their minds and something happens to them, but whatever it is, it's not really good. The meditation that the scripture talks about is meditating upon the content of what God has revealed to be true. And particularly, praise, worship, 
grows out of meditating upon three things as the psalmist lays it out for us here. The first thing that the psalmist meditates upon is God's character. Look at verse 2. It is good to declare your steadfast love in the morning and your faithfulness by night. He meditates upon the faithfulness of God at night and the steadfast love of God in the morning. Notice how he bookends his days with praise. He begins by meditating on the character of God, particularly his steadfast, covenant, redemptive love, and he ends his day by thanking God for his faithful love and protection and provision. He bookends his days with praise. It acknowledges the fact that you can't be consciously, directly involved in worship and praise every moment of your life. You have callings, after all. You have responsibilities. But that should be the compass in your heart is when the needle is pulled away by distractions and responsibilities that it naturally goes back to a God-centered, God-orientation of meditating upon who God is. And sometimes we feel so ill-equipped to worship God, especially when we're talking about our personal, private times of prayer and Bible reading. We don't know how to worship God. Well, it's actually very simple. You meditate upon his character. We sometimes feel like unless we feel worshipful, unless we feel joy and worship in our heart, then we can't worship. But that's exactly backwards. What the psalmist is saying, meditate upon the character of God, his steadfast love, and his faithfulness, among all his other traits. And then worship will well up in the spirit-enlivened soul. That's what he's saying to us. Just begin listing his characteristics as they're laid out in Scripture. And if you can't remember what they are, go to the book of Psalms. Go to other portions of Scripture. They'll give you lots of characteristics of God. Meditate upon them and worship will flow out of the born-again heart. Meditate upon the names by which he's revealed himself. And then worship will flow out of the born-again heart. If you've been studying this week's catechism question, You'll know that the question is, what is God? And the answer is, God is a spirit whose being, power, wisdom, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth are infinite, eternal, and unchangeable. Right there, you've just got about four days worth of worship and praise. That's why we memorize these catechism questions. Because they're summaries of what scripture teaches us about who God is. As you meditate upon those, it leads to praise and worship. The second focus of meditation is God's works. Look at verse 4. For you, O Lord, have made me glad by your work. At the works of your hands I sing for joy. How great are your works, O, O Lord. Not only who God is, but look at all the amazing things that God has done. He particularly goes on in verses 7 to 9 to talk about some great act of deliverance. Look, I'll begin reading uh, particularly there in verse 7. The wicked sprout like grass and evildoers flourish. They are doomed to destruction forever. But you, O Lord, are on high forever. For behold your enemies, O Lord. For behold, your enemies shall perish. All evildoers shall be scattered. 
Most scholars believe that this psalm was written in response to some great act of deliverance that God had accomplished for his people. Many of them believe that it was written at the end of the Babylonian captivity when the empire of Babylon was defeated and as a result the Persians allowed the Jewish exiles to return to Jerusalem and to begin to rebuild their city and their land. We don't know for sure that that's the deliverance that's in mind here, but the psalmist intentionally leaves it open to all the deliverances that go all the way back to the beginning. Focus upon God's work of deliverance and ultimately the great deliverance where our ultimate enemies were conquered in the cross and the empty tomb of Jesus Christ. Your greatest enemies in life are sin and Satan and death and focus upon that deliverance. That's why the gospel is at the center of all that we do. Because as we focus upon God's greatest work of deliverance, we are led to worship and praise and that God-centered orientation that gives us eternal youth. Think of the prayers and speeches of the great men and women of Scripture. Aren't they just rehearsals of God's great works of deliverance most of the time? You think of Nehemiah's prayer, which talked about how many times God had delivered his people and how his people had responded in disobedience. Think of Stephen's prayer before he was stoned to death. It's a very long recitation of God's deliverances of his people. Meditate upon the character of God and the great works of God, particularly his deliverances, and the spirit will bring you to an attitude of praise. Finally, he tells you to meditate upon God's thoughts. Verse 5, O Lord, your thoughts are very deep. I was struck by that last phrase. Meditate upon God's character. Meditate upon God's great works. Go even deeper than that and meditate upon God's thoughts. I mean, with our little puny human brains, go ahead and meditate upon God's thoughts. And what he's speaking to there is the wisdom behind what God does. Why does God deliver us? Why does he do what he do? Why does he do what he does in our lives, in his church, and in all of human history? As you look at his faithfulness playing out in history and in your individual life, reflect upon the thoughts, the plan, the wise plan that is behind all of that. You end up with his great plan of redemption. That's why Ephesians 1 is one of the most worshipful chapters in all of Scripture, if you know what the content of Ephesians 1 is. Because there Paul just gets so caught up in the ecstasy of contemplating God's work of redemption, which was put in place before the foundation of the world and is culminates in Christ's return when all the universe is brought to a state of perfection and obedience and submission to its true Lord and King. And it's a chapter that's full of praise. Because we focus on the character of God, his works, and the wisdom that drives his works. It's like an astronomer looking at the expanse of the universe through the the telescope and being put in a place of humility and awe. We lose our spiritual life and vitality when we don't do, yes, I'll call it the work, we don't do the work of meditating upon who God is and what he's done and why he's done it. 
we lose spiritual life because we're too busy and too distracted to meditate upon what Scripture reveals about those three things. And then we wonder why we don't live a God-centered life. We don't walk our days in a state and attitude of worship. Well, to encourage us to pursue this, to work hard for it, and to, to go after it with passion and diligence, the psalmist goes on to describe what the effect of God-centered living looks like. And he lays out before us four different results to a God-centered life. First of all, joy. Look at verse 4. You have made me glad by your work, O Lord. At the works of your hands I sing for joy. Let me underline that again. You don't have to be joyful in order to worship. Meditate upon who God is, what he has done, and why he's done it, and then the joy will come. The joy is the result, the effect, the fruit of meditating upon these things. And it's a joy that isn't based in your circumstances, it's based in the Lord. Therefore, no matter how difficult or dark your circumstances, it can't take away that joy. Matter of fact, when life is hard, sometimes that joy becomes greater because you lean on the Lord more strongly. Secondly, the result of this meditation upon who God is, what he has done, and why he did it brings perspective, perspective that changes your life. In those verses, those middle verses, it talks about his perspective on his enemies. That evil will be destroyed and that the Lord reigns, as it says in verse 8. That's the center and the high point of the psalm. You, O Lord, are on high forever. It's one of the blessings of old age is that you, as you get closer and closer to those last years of your life, you more and more as a disciple of Christ, realize how temporary your time here on earth is. When you're in your teens and 20s, you think you're eternal inherently. You think that you're invincible. You get feeling more frail and more temporary and more transient the longer you live. Psalm 73, the psalmist was troubled about the prosperity of the wicked and the suffering of the righteous. It says, until I entered the sanctuary of God, then I understood their final destiny. Worship gave him perspective, eternal perspective that enabled him to deal with the difficult circumstances of his life in a fallen world as a sinner among sinners. The wicked are like weeds and grass and the righteous are like cedar trees. When you think about the gospel, that's why the gospel isn't Christianity 101, that once you've completed the course, you move on to the deeper and more complex things of the faith. The gospel is Christianity. The gospel is your life. Because the gospel is the ultimate deliverance of God in your life. It's the ultimate expression of God's character and faithfulness and his love for you. And every day you need to rehearse that and meditate upon it in order to have this kind of perspective that changes your life. That's really what Paul says. 1 Corinthians 15, go home and meditate on that later today. 1 Corinthians 15 is all about the gospel. And listen to the implications to the gospel as he builds his case through, I'm going to just pull out a few verses throughout the chapter. Beginning in verse 19, Paul says, If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But if, in fact... 
But in fact, not if, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. The victory has happened. The deliverance has come. And then down in verse 51, he goes on to say, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. Verse 54, when the perishable puts on imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. He's meditating upon the gospel, the implications for his present and his future. And then listen to the implication. The very last verse, the very next thing that Paul says Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. That's meaning and purpose for your life. That's where it comes from. It's because the gospel is true, because Christ is raised from the dead, because your enemies, your real enemies, have been defeated once and for all. They just don't know it yet. They just haven't experienced the fullness of their defeat. That brings the third characteristic of those who live a God-centered life, which is they live in refreshment. Look at verse 10. But you have exalted my horn like that of the wild ox. You have poured over me fresh oil. Those are biblical images. They don't mean much to us in our culture, but in that culture, the animal's horn was a symbol of its great strength. You think of a rhinoceros horn, it was a sign of great strength. The spiritual strength that comes from meditating upon who God is, what he has done, and why he has done it brings that kind of inner strength And the oil that he's talking about is the oil that they would wear when they go out to celebrate. The oil that that portrayed to the world joy and refreshment. That's what meditating upon the Lord that brings a God-centered orientation does for your life. And then finally, fruitfulness. Look at verse 14. They, these cedars, these righteous ones that are like cedars and palm trees. It says, they still bear fruit in old age. They are ever full of sap and green. We need to end well in our journey in life. We need to die with our boots on. We need to break the tape and leave it all out there on the field. We need to bear fruit in our old age. The end of our parenting, and it is a demanding stage of life. I am so glad to be winding down my age of parenting. Trying not to think like a second semester senior. I'm trying to finish well. But the Lord brings us to the end of that stage in our life, and it brings us to the end of our career-building stage and our estate-building stage and our legacy-building stage in life. He brings us to that stage in life so that we can be freed to serve in other ways. That we can have more opportunity, more time, more energy, more thought to devote to the calling, the work of the kingdom, whatever that might be. And sometimes the last stage of your life is a wonderful time of discovery of a new calling and a new opportunity and new circumstances for serving the Lord As long as you have breath in this life, you have a purpose in Christ's kingdom. Let me say that again. 
As long as you have breath in this life, you have a purpose in Christ's kingdom. The church has become worldly in one very subtle and and, and in a way that we don't talk about much, but there's a lot of ways in which the the church has become worldly. But one of the ways is the way we look at retirement. We've bought into the lies of the world. You know, I've, I've, I've decided... You know, this midlife crisis that Americans have because we pursue the American dream and then once we achieve a lot of it, then we don't have anything to live for. That's been our solution. That's been our deliverance. That's been our redemption to say, well, okay, I'm going to live for retirement now. I'm going to build up a big bank account so that when I get to a certain age, I can just kind of quit. I can buy a nice big lazy boy and buy a condo in Florida and nice fast you know, sports car that I can never afford when I had kids, you know, and I'm just going to really live then, and that's what I'm going to live for. That's not scriptural. Too many Christians see the last days of their life, their last time on earth, as a time to quit serving and get comfortable and check out and wait for the end. Ralph Winter is one of the great experts in missiology, one of the great missionary voices of the last century and Ralph Winter gave this challenge to older saints he said do you ever notice that most men don't die of old age they die of retirement he said that it's that he read somewhere that half of the men retiring in the state of New York die within two years did Paul retire did Peter retire did John retire do military officers retire in the midst of a war I understand, and I'm understanding more and more every day, that as this body grows weaker, that sometimes there are ways in which I can't serve the Lord like I used to. But there are other ways in which I'm able to serve the Lord far better than I used to. I'm less distracted, less responsibilities, more time, more disposable income. And we need to be thinking about how to use those opportunities for the gospel for the kingdom, for Christ, and not for comfort in this fallen world. That's not what we're called here for. Just one small example, and I'll bring it up because Tom gave the announcement about the the big gaps in the nursery schedule. I've served in several different churches, and I've heard it in every church I've served in, so I'm not picking on this church in particular. I've I've heard it here, though. I've heard older saints say, I'm not going to work in the nursery, and I'm not going to teach in children's Sunday school because I've done my time going to let the younger people take up their, their part of the load. And to me, that's the world's view of retirement. Now, I'm not saying that some of you may not have the ability to teach like you used to. Maybe God's given you another calling. You're so busy serving the Lord in other areas of ministry that you can't do that. But don't let it be just because you've already done your time. Because your time's not done. If your time's done, then you're out of here. <laughs> you have time to serve. And you have opportunities there. And what's sad to me is that our wisest, most experienced child workers are sitting on the sideline and leaving it to the most green and inexperienced ones to do the work. As I'm finding out more and more that the real Christian life and ministry is about making and building disciples who can make disciples, I'm realizing that the last stage of life is one of the most valuable times for being a disciple maker. Share that wisdom. Walk alongside those who are learning the ropes. Disciple younger Christians and young leaders. 
You need to be as faithful and diligent in serving the Lord as your physical strength, your health, your resources, and your opportunities provide. I understand that's going to change as you get into the later stages of life. But you need not to quit. You need to not sit back and just get comfortable. I think of nursing homes as one of the neediest places on earth. Some of the most lonely and broken people I know I've met in nursing homes. And I would love for churches to have commissioning services to send missionaries who are aged saints into the nursing homes and retirement homes to bring the light of the gospel where it is needed so desperately. I think of a man named Harold Height. Harold Height was the pastor who retired three years before I came to serve in my church in the Philadelphia suburbs. Harold Height was still a relative, he was kind of retirement age by the way this culture defines it, and he retired from, quote-unquote, retired from full-time ministry at that church and went to the Coralville Presbyterian Retirement Home. That was in 1988. Last I checked, which was only a few months ago, he's still serving at Quarryville Retirement Home as a chaplain, as a pastor, doing sermons, teaching, leading Bible studies, visiting, pastoring, counseling, well into his mid-90s. I want to die like that. I want to die with my boots on. I want to be making an impact. I want to be a light wherever I am, wherever God has called me. And you know what? I look at a guy like Harold Height. I say, he is vibrant. He is strong. Stronger than I am. In Deuteronomy 34, at the end of the book of Deuteronomy, it says this about Moses. It says, Moses was 120 years old when he died. His eye was undimmed and his vigor unabated. His eye was undimmed and his vigor unabated at 120. What's your excuse? The secret to eternal life spelled out very clearly at the end of Isaiah 40. Have you not known, have you not heard, the Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint, and to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youths shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. I know old people like Harold Height that are vibrant and strong and vigorous and making a difference in the world. And I know young saints who are weak and broken and ineffective and making no impact because they don't meditate upon the Lord and develop a God-centered life. Oakwood's vision, you remember that? We long to become oaks of righteousness, growing roots deep into God's word, bearing fruit of God-centered holiness and worship, branching out with gospel-centered service and witness to State College, Penn State, Center County, and the world. Do you hear Psalm 92 in that? I told you when we came up, when we brought you this vision for our church, it's based very deeply in Scripture. It's what abundant life is all about, of being that kind of a vigorous, vital Christian. 
you know, you think of the eternal youth. Reincarnation is a bum rap. I do not want to be reincarnated when I die. If that's what the idea of eternal youth is, I want no part of it. Because honestly, diapers are bad enough the first time around. Adolescence is worse. And the foolishness and pride of being a young adult, I don't want to go back there again. I want to hold on to the wisdom and Christ-likeness that God has already given to me by his grace, and I want it to grow and become greater, and then I want God to give me that resurrection body and make everything perfect and put me in a new heavens and new earth. You know, you don't have a midlife crisis if that's your hope, because the best is yet to come. It only gets better from here. You only grow closer to the Lord. You only become more like him. You only become stronger within. You only enjoy more and more of his blessings. Let me conclude with 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 16 to 18. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. That's our hope, and that's the cure for the midlife crisis, and it's the secret to eternal youth. Let's pray. Father, we have come here to the Lord's house on the Lord's day to focus upon the glory of Christ to be renewed and strengthened. Thank you for the spiritual food that your word has been to us. And now as we gather around your table, may we honor you with our hunger and our thirst for the water and the bread of life that is Jesus Christ. We pray in his name. Amen.